My name is Dave. I have a few announcements, and then I will welcome our guest teacher, the Venerable Dr. Panavati, who will offer the Dharma talk for this evening. Saturday, April 18th, Howie will be leading a half-day retreat at the Mindfulness Care Center in San Francisco. This is a really wonderful opportunity to do a little more sitting, if you are looking to do a little more sitting. It's a half day, and uh, pre-registration is not required. That's Saturday, April 18th. As always, the Tuesday night sits here at Mission Dharma are offered free of charge. The teachings since the time of the Buddha have been considered priceless, and this also allows anyone to come, uh, regardless of their income level or ability to, to give. You are welcome to support the teacher and the Sangha and the Dharma by uh, giving a donation. This is known as dana in the language of Pali, the Buddha's language, and this means generosity. So if you can please uh, show your generosity this evening, there are baskets here in the organ bench in the back where you can uh, leave donations. And there's instructions back there if you'd like to use PayPal or write a check. And now let me introduce the Venerable Dr. Panavati, our guest teacher. She's a yogini, former Christian pastor, founding co-abbot of Embracing Simplicity Hermitage, and a founding director of Sisters of Compassionate Wisdom. She's ordained in Theravada and Chan schools, a Zen Dharma holder, and Vajrayana practitioner as well. Her insight is rich with compassion, wit, and humor. Welcome to Mission Dharma. Good evening. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Buddhan Saranam Gachami, Dhamman Saranam Gachami, Sangam Saranam Gachami. I vow to avoid killing living things. I vow to avoid taking what is not given. I vow to avoid sensual misconduct. I vow to avoid false speech. I vow to avoid malicious speech. I vow to avoid harsh speech. I vow to avoid gossip. I vow to avoid covetousness. I vow to avoid ill will. I vow to avoid wrong view. The Buddha suggested that we start each day with this kind of a vow. When we take a vow, we take a vow to ourselves. I, you know, I wrote some notes, and I think I'll get to them. I may not. Um, but when we take a vow, we take a vow to our, ourselves. It may benefit others, but it's not for others. It's really for oneself. So everything we do, we do for ourselves. We're the owners and the heirs of our own uh, thoughts, words, and actions. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that third precept, I vow to avoid sensual misconduct. Um, it is sort of filtered down to be a singular were sexual misconduct, but it is actually plural in the uh, in the Pali. And the Buddha is constantly talking about uh, 
sensuality or sensual misconduct, being carried away by what the eyes see or the ears hear, or what we taste or touch or smell, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking. He includes thinking as uh, a sense because it it connects us, our ideas coming about. uh, We are connected to the external world. And so we take uh, great stock. I'm so sorry that I can't see all of you over there. If, if you want to move up somewhere or over there, it would be okay. I like to look at, I like to see everybody. Um, I'm so sorry if I, yeah. So he said that that's what connects us to this external world, and that's what makes us form opinions based on something outside of ourselves. And he said, but this is not a reliable way to, to uh, live in our lives. It's not a reliable way to uh, ascend to the holy life. And those of us who come into the Dharma Hall, we're coming because we know something is already missing. Something is unsatisfactory. Things are always changing in the external world, and there's no reliance to be found there. So we find ourselves gravitating, looking for something that we can grasp that gives us a sense of security in this world. But this is what the Buddha said about the world. He said the world offers no shelter. There is no one in charge. The world has nothing of its own. Yet one has to pass on leaving everything behind. So the world is insufficient. It's insatiable and is a slave to craving. And that's in the Majima Nikaya number 82. So it says for one to even be attracted to the Dharma, there has to have come a certain dissatisfactoriness with life. Like, oh, what is the meaning? Why am I here? Everybody trying to pursue uh, their, their, their purpose, you know, uh, the purpose for their lives. And, you know, the Buddha said, actually, it's really no purpose. You're here due to causes and conditions. So now that I'm here, what will I do? with myself. So that's a better question. What will I do now that I'm here? How will I seize the essence of this precious human life? And so that becomes our question at some point in our lives. How do I make life meaningful? Because everything that I've tried, you know, has turned out to be unsatisfactory, let me down. That guy that I thought I wanted when I got him, I, I had so much changing to do on him. That that woman that I wanted, and I loved the way she looked, and I loved the way she moved. But now that I have her, I don't want her to move like that, because I don't want other men to look at her, you know. That car that I wanted and that $800 car note now, and I'm wondering, why did I buy that car? And so we think we want these things because we think they'll give us a certain degree of happiness, and for a time they do. But then after a while we find that they're insufficient, insatiable, and that I have become a slave of my own craving. (laughs) And so we start to look for a way out of this mess. 
And we're looking to hear something to find another way. And then that way gets introduced and we say, oh, that's not going to work. And we stick with what we know. And we just continue in this cycle of suffering. But Buddha said, there is a way out of suffering. And that one can rejoice now and can rejoice hereafter. He said, how? Only by recollecting one's virtuous life. So that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. The virtuous life as a way out of our misery. This means that in spite of everything we know, uh, in spite of whatever anyone else says, that we have to know our own minds and intention. And we have to walk in a certain kind of, of inner integrity, that regardless of what it might look like on the outside, beyond that, we do the best we can. So I have to ask myself, what is my best? Not what you think my best is. Not what society says my best is. But I have to develop within me some uh, instrument by which to measure the stature of my life. And when I have stepped into that, then I find liberation. Everybody following the leader, following whatever is the, the, the latest psychology, following the, always looking externally for something. And he said, what you're seeking cannot be found externally. One must turn inward. And so begin to teach practices of how to turn inward. And when we do, we find a graduated um, uh, outflow of light, luminosity, comes from the inside. And then we abandon the ways of the world, the people who say, I see, but they can't see. I know, but they don't really know. And we find our own standard for living, for moving, for having our being in the world. And so he said, we start with a practice like this. Having seen a form with the eyes, one remains neither attracted to nor repelled by a disgusting form. That's our first training. Having seen a, a form with the eye, one remains neither attracted to nor disgusted by. So we talk about this middle way, and what is it? That's it right there. Whatever we see and we like or whatever tickles our fancy, you know, we have a lingering glance around. Whatever we don't want to see, uh, whatever we find disgusting, we turn away from and we don't want to see. He said, that's your first practice right there. 
turning towards that which is disgusting to one. And sticking with it, staying with it, until we can bear to see it. And sticking with it, and staying with it, until it is no longer disgusting to us. On the way here, I um, got off the metro, and there was a guy, I think he was playing a viola, and it was so beautiful, so beautiful. And I wanted to um, offer something to him. So I stopped right by him, and I started going through my bag. And I had just grabbed uh, a little money off the nightstand before I, um, before I left. And when I went out the door, uh, Jen said, you won't need any money because we're going to take care of this. I said, but Jen, I wanted to pay for the dinner tonight. Everybody's been so kind, and, and I've just been a nuisance, you know, and they've been taking care of me. Take me this place, take me that place, buy me this. I like chocolate cake. I got all kinds of chocolate cake, cupcakes, candy, you know, uh, candy bars. And I wanted to do something, so I grabbed one bill and came out the door. So I'm fishing through my bag looking for something to offer this gentleman. And all I had was a $100 bill, and I had purpose to pay for dinner. And I couldn't leave the 100 And I felt so bad. I said, I know a minute ago his heart was going to boom, 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 because somebody was going to recognize his gift. But I had to go up that escalator without giving. But then we had our dinner. And when we had our dinner, there was some change left. And we left the restaurant on our way, on our way here. And there was a, a, a man sitting in there with a cup and he said, Can you spare some change? Can you spare some change? I said, oh, thank you! You know, and I stopped and started rummaging through my bag. You know, because I was so glad to have an opportunity. I was like, oh, thank you. I know he thought I was crazy, but that's okay. Because I recognize that everything that we do, we do for ourselves. We may think we're doing it for somebody else. And so he says that we begin to change and shift when we apply the antidotes to the things that that cause our craving, to the things that we're in armored with, to the things that we call beautiful. And suddenly when we look out, we see beauty in the ugly. And we see the danger and the ugliness of some things that we once called beautiful. So we're training the eyes to see in a way that's 
egalitarian in a way that considers the other as oneself, in a way that transforms the heart. He said, hearing a sound with the ear, we train to be neither captivated by fine sound nor repulsed by any horrible sound. So this weekend, uh, we were sort of angsting, angsting <laughs> over whether to put an offer on this property for a, a meditation center. And it was so beautiful. It was so um, It's like when you came there, you could really, really make progress. It was away from the sounds and the sights and the noises and the smells of the city. But when I got here to the Mission District and began to, had to walk from the subway, that's, it's called a subway, yeah, had to walk from the subway you know, to the restaurant and to here, and I mingled with the sounds and the sights and the scents of the Mission District. And it was so beautiful to me. And I said, I'm glad we made the decision to not put a contract on that. You know what? We need to have a center right in the heart of everything. Okay, if we want to be quiet when we meditate, fine. We'll build a soundproof room right in the middle. But we need to be accessible. We need to be with. You know, I get a lot of flack from uh, I, I, when the gentleman came towards me, he wasn't sure like what to do. I said, don't worry about it. I'm a hugging nun. I said, but don't hug any other one, you know, because uh, we don't do that. <laughs> but I'm a, um, you know, we're forest monks, right? But people are my forest. People are my trees. I'm always reminded of that uh, scripture in the Bible where somebody, a guy was blind and he came to Jesus for healing. And Jesus uh, mixed a little spittle with some uh, earth and he made a, a salve for his eyes and put it on his eyes. And then told him to go wash it off and come back and tell him how he, how he saw. He came back and he said, I see men walking as trees. And so I guess Jesus did a little bit more and told him to go wash again. And he came back and he saw men as men. But I see men walking as trees. So when I'm amongst the people, I am in the forest. He says that when we smell a smell, we should neither be allured by the pleasant smell nor rejected by the repulsive smell. Now, how's that, how's that going to happen? How's that going to happen for you? You got to smell some stinking stuff until you get so used to it that it just doesn't stink anymore. It's just a smell. 
You can't read that in a book and get it. You can't listen to it in a tape and, and memorize it and make it so. It only comes by direct experience. Putting ourselves in that place until we become accustomed accustomed to the smell. And he said, when touched with the body, neither be tempted by any delicate touch, nor disgusted by an unpleasant touch. I told a story one time uh, in one of our retreats about being raped and... um, and how as long as I held that against that young man, I was not free. It wasn't a matter of justice because we know people go to jail all day long for things that they did to someone else and they go when they didn't do anything too. But it doesn't really alleviate, you know, the suffering of what someone has done to you. So I had to find another way out of this. And I decided to try forgiving him. Because it had to be an ignorance that produces that kind of action. And I did. And I got free. So I'm sharing this. And there was another woman at that retreat. And she was so upset, she could not accept the fact that I could forgive her. He said, it's like, and I took responsibility for my part. I was high. I was somewhere doing something that took away um, the, the I, I lost my faculties. So in a small way, I was a participant in the culmination of that moment. Now that wasn't her rape situation, and I wasn't speaking about hers. I was speaking about mine. And in part of forgiving him for me, was just simply recognizing that I made myself more vulnerable than I had to be. And she was just really, really upset about that. She said, now, you know, it's the same old thing. You're making the, you know, the, the victim the one at fault when you do that. And you send the wrong message. And I said, no. I said, you know, What happened? We sat and talked. What happened with your situation? You know, it doesn't matter whether the person gets caught or whether the person goes to jail. It doesn't take that scourge away from you because how you think about it is only in your own mind. So we're talking about being free. We have to ask ourselves, is there something somebody did to me that I'm still holding on, still reliving it, still making it so, making it happen right today, right this moment? 
You know, because the mind doesn't know whether it's real. Well, I'm looking at the ages around here. A few of you know what I mean when I say whether it's real or whether it's Memorex. If you bring it up right now to the mind, it's happening right now. It's fresh every time you review it in your mind. The Buddha said he beat me, he abused me, he robbed me. To those who harbor such thoughts in them, hatred will never be appeased. But the thing about hatred is like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. You know, I mean, they go off about their business and, I mean, you hate on them, but they don't feel it. They don't know. And probably they don't care. But yet, bringing all of this suffering, the hatred I felt for him, the shame I felt for myself. But he says that we have to get to this place that what's on this end, we need to bring it this way. What's on this end, we need to bring it this way. Until we have it situated in that middle space. And he says when we do, our liberation is not far away. He said when there is a thought In the mind, be neither enticed by an agreeable thought, nor be disappointed by a disagreeable one. Enticed by an agreeable thought. You know, so all day long the mind goes, I like it, I don't like it. I like this, I don't like it. I like you, I don't like them. As it, all day long, mind goes this way. And we find ourselves unstable and we make the world. So how can we expect the world to be stable? We, we are the world. And how we know ourselves is how we know others. The one who's always accusing, always blaming, always criticizing, always judging is the one who looks inward in that same way. That's why when I see someone uh, Exhibiting those kinds of behaviors. I understand that is an insecure mind. That is a fearful mind. So if your mind is fearful and I'm afraid of you, then I guess my mind's not even on the radar. So when we understand what's in the other mind and we come up upon it, with wisdom, we can understand what is happening below the surface. What's happening on the inside. And we can find a right response to bring relief to the other. And in him finding his relief, 
we also find our freedom. So we have so much of a discussion going on right now about rights, about justice, about how we uh, even uh, view what's happening in the world. One person's terrorist is another country's freedom fighter. Just depends on which country you're in. And when we are looking at our own, we can take this much from others, but we give this much. And it seems right in our own eyes. And the Buddha said that this is because we have this notion, this conceit, I, me, my and mine. And because this notion is informed by everything in the external world, what we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we taste, what we smell, and the ideas we form around that, what we think, We find ourselves at odds with everything that's not I, not me, not mine. Self-preservation, the first law. So Buddha says if we follow that first law, we will come to our own destruction. We will come to our own demise. We said we need something new. No, we don't need anything new. We just need to go back to the heart. Out of the head and into the heart. The sages sum it up so beautifully. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Whatever you don't want for yourself, they trust me, they don't want it either. You know. That's I just need to ask myself that question. What you wouldn't want done to yourself, don't do it to anybody else. We can start right there. If I say the wrong thing, you know, or even if I do the wrong thing and didn't mean it. I want you to cut me a little bit slack, but even if I said the wrong thing and did the wrong thing and I meant it, I still want you to cut me some slack. I still want you to forgive me. So when someone says the wrong thing to you, does the wrong thing to you, don't give them what they deserve, give them but you would want for yourself. Now, this is not an easy way to live. I mean, because there's some bad boys out here in the world. 
It's not an easy way to live. But everybody learns by example. How do you think? They arrived at certain conclusions, something they heard sitting around the dinner table from Uncle Billy Bob. And they formed some idea or some opinion about some other group. How do you change that? When we go to our family reunions and they start that talk, instead of just sitting silent, especially if they come to your house, you say, we don't talk like that here. I had a lady in my sangha, and she came to me frantic. She said, Paniwadi, I got a problem, I got a problem. I said, what? She said, uh, I've been getting hate mail. I said, you have? She said, yeah. She said, and it's from my friends. I said, it is? She said, yeah, my friends at the country club. I said, well, why? She said, well, because I'm voting for Obama. I said, "Uh, well, what do you want? What are you asking me? She said, well, I'm asking you how to get my friends back. I said, well, just take the Obama sticker off your car, stop talking about them, and you, and you have them back. If you want them, the ones that are sending you hate mail because you don't agree with them about them. But you know what she did? She took the Obama sticker off it, and she stopped talking about them, and she got her friends back. You know, so we have to make choices like this all the time. So I ask you, what choice will you make tomorrow when you find yourself in a situation where there's something you know is wrong and you either choose to participate or you're ostracized because you stand for what you believe. You see, it costs something to walk this path. It costs something. But it's worth the cost. It's worth the cost because we find a ease in life. We find that we can live with ourselves. No sense of shame when I forgave you for what you did. That purified and cleansed my mind stream. And therefore, I saw my body as undefiled. Do you understand what I mean? We're looking for the world to give us something. We're looking for the world to give us shelter. But he said, the world offers no shelter. But once one recognizes one's own virtuous life, that's where we find our peace, where we find our joy, where our days are filled with wonder. When we know at the setting of the sun, today, I lived 
in my own integrity. And when we lay down to sleep or we close our eyes to meditate, we have peace. He said these eight worldly winds, praise and blame, loss and gain, pleasure and pain, shame and fame, is what keeps us shifting and unstable. But once we come to that place that we will live our own truth moment by moment by moment, just handling the moment with integrity, said that is the moment of your freedom. This is the spiritual practice of a student of the Buddha. It has nothing to do with rites or rituals or funny clothes <laughs> or rules for their own sake. But it has everything to do with this one thing. And that is gaining rule over your own mind. Not the mind of the person next to you, but your own mind. We can't control what other people do, but we can control what we do. We talk about wars and countries going to war, but countries don't go to war. People do. So this is a thing that every person has to do. That's the only way that we're going to change the world. We talk about institutions. We talk about sanghas. You know, but these are all labels. They're all comprised of what? People. They're all comprised of people. So it really comes down to what each person will do. So I ask you tonight, what will you do? When all is going well, temples and monasteries should be built. But when things are not going well, we should get up off our pillows and do something. Through reflection of our own thoughts, our own speech, our own action, we interject a, an energy and a power into the world that absolutely can transform. I moved away from that town. And later when I went back to visit, that man found out that I was in town, and he came to see me. And he said, I've been trying to find you for years because I wanted to be accountable to you for what I had done. And I said, oh, I forgave you a long time ago. He said, but I couldn't forgive myself. He became a psychiatrist trying to figure out what made him do that thing. And it took all of that for him to simply figure out because he was jealous, he felt that I had come between him and his best friend. And he had resentment towards me for that. 
he wanted to hurt me. That was his reason. And it took eight years of studying psychotherapy to figure it out. But what's so wonderful about having the Dharma is the Buddha already figured it out. And he says, look right there. Think about that. Reflect on that. And see what you come up with. (laughs) So when I'm perplexed about something, when there's a mind in front of me and I'm not sure what kind of mind that is, I look at the qualities I see and I also look at the confusion that I see. And if you haven't come to know it, you can look it up. You can Google it. And they'll say, this kind of mind speaks like this. This kind of mind uh, does this kind of action. And he said, don't take my word for it, you know. He said, examine for yourself and see if it's not true. And once you start to understand the minds that are in front of you, you know how to move and have your being in the world. And you can offer the world that which brings them comfort. But you can only offer what you yourself possess. So when we meditate, and I know this is a mindfulness practicing group, (laughs) but I want to introduce some of you to another type of meditation. That instead of sitting and noting what's arising in the mind, you know, I mean, you could be sitting there like representing, you know, looking like you're just like great meditator. And the mind's all over the place. You know that song comes out, your, your body's here with me, but your mind is on the other side of town. It's like that a lot when we're meditating. But he said there is a practice that we can do that brings us to the absolute Stilling of thought. And when we come to that still, quiet space, he said there is a joy that begins to arise. And with this joy that arises, there is a confidence. A confidence that I can move through the world and that my life can matter. And that things can change. And that I can bring a solution. If I only bring it to one person and he takes it to one person and he takes it to one person. And pretty soon it will filter out of two. It will cover my whole sangha. It will cover my neighborhood. And there will be a turning of the ship. There will be a shift. And I even have the patience to allow this to happen. 
that I see the redeeming qualities. Nobody's all bad. And I see those things to watch out for because nobody's all good. He said, but this joy will arise. His confidence. And there will be a a, a zeal that arises. It's like a, a dunamis, like a power. A power of presence. It's like when you walk into a room, you can set the temperature instead of just registering the temperature in a room. And you'll know the power of this practice, this sitting in the stillness, this, this practice of voidness. Void of what? Void of the sights and the sounds and the smells of the phenomenal world. Void of what? Void of all the proliferation of thinking that we do based when our contact with the sense world. He said, in this space where there's absolute stillness, something happens. So what happens? He said, try it and find out. He said, you get a taste of Nibbana here and now. A taste of liberation here and now. So when we're all trying to figure out how to be enlightened, he says, sit down, shut up, and just draw your sense gates in and allow something to arise within you that's not based on the information that you receive from the outside. And we're going to try it now. We're going to do it right now. Do you all usually break before you go to meditation? Because I hope you don't. Because I'd like to like just move right into it. If you need to stand up and stretch, stand up and stretch. Um, we can just stand up and stretch because we're going to go into a meditation. But I want you to hold a, like a, a, a container. This 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 discussion that the Buddha has just had with us. And usually I'm really funny. And I you know I, I really I really am. I don't know what this is tonight, but I go with the flow. Uh, you know uh, uh, that's why they call me the laughing nun because usually I'm laughing all the time and I, I'm very serious tonight. And I think one reason that I am serious is because I recognize the hard work that you have to do here. I'm in a place, pretty much everything's copacetic. Everywhere you look, it's a pretty sight. You know? I don't, I'm not in a neighborhood like this. I'm not confronted with certain things every day. I'm not confronted with the reality of other people's suffering day after day, but I know that you are. And I know that I can wear on you after a while. And I know you can wonder if you're making a difference. 
and wondering how to sustain yourself so that you can run the good race, so that you can keep going. So the Buddha taught us this technique (laughs) to dip and refresh. I'm not sure he classified that way, dip and refresh, but... (laughs) But it does do those things, right? goes much further than that, but if we just start with that, how wonderful it is. And so you came, I, I always give the Dharma talk first so that the meditation can be informed by the talk. It's like a setup, you know, like just setting the mind up to go in a certain Direction. So, pardon me for breaking the, you know. I know I know how you you do it, but um, and so he said, we take an object, and tonight we're just going to use the breath because everybody's got that, and we know where it is. We know where to find it. We know how to recognize it. But you could use some other object. It doesn't matter. But tonight, we're using the breath. And because I never met you all before, I didn't bring my usual implements. Because of... After, after the first time I see you, once I come the second time, I come bearing gifts. I mean, we use earplugs. We use earplugs and we use eye masks. Because he said, when I train them in this meditation, I take them away from the sights, the sounds, the senses, the smells, the conversation, and the people in the city. I take them to the forest. But, you know, the forest has its own scents and sights and smells. And he said, so then I take them from the forest and I take them to the earth. So little by little, he's drawing in. He's bringing about some sense deprivation. He says, and as you withdraw from this phenomenal world, you discover another world. And in this world, you refresh. And when you come back out to this world, you are renewed. It's like a washing. And you're able to go again. So coming in that door, we came with cares Frustrations, hurts, resentments, questions, confusion. We may have come with excitement, elation. He said, whether the mind is moving towards something that is 
unpleasant or something that is pleasant. It's still a mental agitation. (laughs) We thought only unpleasant things agitated the mind. But he says, unpleasant and pleasant. It's all an agitation. And so setting aside those cares for the world for just a short time, we purpose to enter into the stillness within. We can come back and pick those things up as soon as the meditation is over if you want to. So don't worry. Your cares that you carry around in a sack on your back, they're not going to be far from you if you're not ready to let them go. But just for a few minutes, we sat them down. I'm giving you a few minutes to just place them to one side. No need to think about it for the next few minutes. And since the relief that there is in not having to Find the solution to that problem at this minute. Just a breather. And we feel just a little bit lighter. And suppose for just the next few moments we give everybody a get-out-of-jail-free card. We give everybody a second chance. Or if you already gave them a second, a third. Or if you already gave them a third, a fourth. For the next few moments, we're not going to blame anybody for anything. And we're going to assume that any unskillful that we know about has been consummated due to ignorance. So we can condemn the deed 
but not the doer. Just an experiment. And just for the next few minutes. For the next few minutes, we'll take on the mind of the superior man. The one who is the strongest, who can bear the infirmities, the shortcomings of the weak. just for the next few moments. And relaxing the face we find that we have a sort of inner smile that radiates when we don't hold any art against anyone. And we can train in having this inner smile. We can train in joy. And training in this joy transforms our experience, our assessment of what is happening moment to moment. It leaves just a little opening gives just a little leeway in every situation. Takes just a bit of the edge off and the pressure off.
And so with this kind of mind, this mind inclining towards kindness and compassion, we establish a state of mind that is light, that is bright, and that is free. We begin to see how we bind ourselves then with our own thoughts. We turn our attention to the breath, just breathing in and breathing out naturally. Don't try to hold it. Don't try to do anything funny with it. Just breathing. The Buddha said, like a sawyer saws a log. And he keeps his eye right there where the teeth of the blade meets the log. And although he saws back and forth, just like we breathe in and out, yet his focus never leaves that one spot where the teeth of the blade meet the log. And in like manner, As we breathe in and out, we establish one fixed point where that whole breath, a whole body of breath, crosses that one point. It can be at the tip of the nose, at the bridge of the nose, at the top of the lip, anywhere you feel the air moving in to the body, moving out from the body, but just that one spot. He said, with applied and a sustained thought on this object of meditation, investigating, examining every aspect of the breath. This is a long breath. This is a short breath. This is a double breath. (sighs) 
was a ragged breath. This is a smooth breath. Just noting the characteristics and qualities of the breath. Bringing all of your attention, all of your focus, just to this beautiful breath. Face relaxed, shoulders relaxed, arms relaxed, torso relaxed, thighs relaxed, calves relaxed, feet relaxed. Attention fully on the breath. And this is our total job right now. We train thus tranquilizing bodily formation. trained us, tranquilizing mental formations. No distracting thoughts because everything is harmonized. Experiencing the ease of body and mind. Yielding to the stillness of a heart at peace.
and gazing into the vastness. of the no-thingness behind the closed eyelids. Experiencing the letting go.
And when you begin to feel a sense of contentment and happiness, you can just leave the breath and enter into that feeling. and grow your own happiness.
Now that was 38 minutes. And the thing about it is, it's almost like making a, um, a journey, taking a journey somewhere. It's like if I say go to the store and you don't know where the store is, I say go two blocks uh, down the street, make a right turn at the stop sign, cut across the field where the oak tree is, and the store will be right over there. So you start haltingly making your way to the store. And the first couple of times, like, did he say go left or did he say go right? Uh, And you get a little bit confused maybe about which way to go. But the more you traverse, you know, that ground, the more you walk it, the more you you know quickly how to get to the store. The Buddha said that's how meditation should be. It shouldn't take you all night to get in. That that you should be able to like, you know where it is, you can like go right there, drop right in, and come right out at will. A-T space W-I-L-L. He said at will. And so this, but this takes training to be able to do that. So when we're sitting in meditation, we're not just letting go for a while. We're training the mind. To be where we place it. And that it can sit there without making up stuff. Without supposing and thinking and worrying and wondering. It can just rest. And in that time of resting, we create the space. Where something that is rich and applicable to the moment can arise. You see, in that space of nothingness, it's not really nothingness, it's no thingness, the no thingness out of which everything comes. And so as we're bringing our focus in, bringing it in, bringing it in, until it's single-pointed, but it doesn't stay there. After a while, it cuts across this boundary, and he talks about this world, and he talks about otherworldliness. He says that when we get to that point, that the mind is concentrated, absolutely still, no distracting thoughts. Why? Because we have trained the mind to stay right where we place it, on our object of meditation. And then when a sound comes in, we're like not even interested in that. The mind doesn't run out when you become focused in this way. He says, and then there is a space where we cross a boundary, and then everything becomes included in our field of meditation. So we do close in, but then once we reach that still point, everything else becomes included in the field. But it's not a distraction. It's just whatever it is, wherever it is. And we'll be able to get up from this pillow. And we'll be able to walk through life in that same way. With a steadiness. And with a clarity. And with a peace. That the world didn't give us. So the world can't take it from us. This is your... This is your work. This is your work. Now, last thing I want to say is if you just stop and stick your thumbs in your ears for 10 seconds and then take them out.
And did you get a sense of, of um, isolation? A sense of being really alone? <laughs> you didn't even know, notice that the person was next to you. Really, really alone. So he talks about seclusion, you know. And seclusion has its place in training. And so I always recommend that we, when we're training, we can train with the earplugs. It cuts out a lot of the distraction that we can't seem to get rid of in the beginning until we know where to go. But once we know where to go, no need for the earplugs. Close your eyes, tune it off, and you go right there. You'll see a difference in, your, in the degree to which you can drop into the stillness. And once you know where it is, you can be right in the middle of a highway and you can find that still point. Somebody can be coming and like just barfing in your face and you can, you can just like drop into that still point. And you know, they find no one to push against. You see? Yeah. And they said, how does she do that? That's the difference in a trained mind and an untrained mind. You said, and then once you get to this place, then the insights will really come. And the insights won't be based on what you already think. You know, we always have an insight, <laughs> and they're based on what we already think or the way we want to think about a thing. And we call that <clears throat> insight. But this will be an insight that is born of a clear mind, not already colored with perception, but just a clear, stable, unconfused, not leaning in one direction or another, for or against mind. And that's the mind of a Buddha. Sabiriya viwajantu Sokoro kovinasatu Mate barantong taraya Sukiirigaya kovpawa May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you and no danger. May you always be able to meet with the inevitable difficulties of life. Yeah? That's all I got.